Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Scott Schaefer. I'm the senior editor of KQED's Politics and Government Desk, and I'm very excited to be uh, moderating today's program. I'm pleased to be joined by Robert Costa. He's one of the co-authors of the new book, Peril, the transition from President Donald Trump to President Joe Biden, as we all know, was one of the most tumultuous periods in recent American history. And Robert Costa and his co-author, Bob Woodward, have taken on the task of documenting the transition in a never-before-seen way. With material ranging from secret orders of uh, tra- to transcripts of phone conversations from the Trump and Biden White House, the 2020 campaign, and more, Peril is the story about changes, a first inside look into Biden's presidency and the unique challenges that face the new administration. We'll be discuss- discussing a lot in the next hour, and of course, we want to hear your questions as well. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. Bob Costa, Robert Costa, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be with you. I mean, I, when I was writing this book with uh, Bob Woodward, we, we would always refer to each other by our surnames. Woodward, Costa, because there are too many Bobs involved. Bob and Bob. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about a Mark, uh, and that would be Mark Milley. Uh, this book opens. It really does pack a punch, and uh, you don't waste any time. I think the first, very first page of the prologue, uh, you tell uh, the story about uh, phone calls from the Joint Chiefs uh, chairman um, to his counterpart in China, uh, General Li, I think it's probably pronounced, or Li, General Li, uh, a week before the election, and then also uh, right after the January 6th insurrection. And he was trying to reassure his counterpart that everything's under control, this is normal, democracy can be messy. But what was he thinking, really, as he was on those phone calls? He obviously felt compelled to make the call. Well, it's great to be with you and with everyone here at the Commonwealth Club. I only wish we could be doing this in person and hope to make it to San Francisco soon. But this prologue of our book, it's something we never expected to find. It's part of reporting and sometimes the joy of reporting, but also how just reporting out a story like this can continually stun you, surprise you. When we started out this book in December, we never thought there'd be an insurrection. And then come January 6th, we we watched it. Woodward and I watched it, just like everybody else. We were startled watching this terrible event at the Capitol. And it seemed to be a domestic political crisis. But while the story kept moving in Washington, the luxury of doing a book is you have the luxury of time. And Woodward and I kept going back to January 6th, back to what was really happening behind the scenes. And what we found was that this was not just a domestic political crisis, that almost like the Cuban Missile Crisis you had something unfolding behind the scenes that was highly tense, fraught. And this is on January 8, 2021, that the world was on alert about the United States. What happens in the the U.S. doesn't happen in a vacuum. Our adversaries are watching. China, Iran, Russia, they're on high alert. Our national security apparatus is activated because this is now a time of instability. Uh, in the United States. And the world wonders, is the U.S. going to have some kind of coup d'etat? And so Milley, as the senior military officer of the United States, is constantly trying to avoid one thing. Our reporting shows his number one priority is avoiding a great powers war. And what we also found 
in our reporting is that this call that Milley had on January 8th with General Lee, the head of the PLA, very close with uh, President Xi, is that this was preceded on October 30th, 2020, by a similar call. And Milley believes miscommunication can be the seed of war. And it's very important. Sometimes this has been misunderstood about our book. If you read our book, it's evident. We spell it out. Milley believed Trump did not want war. But that did not matter because the Chinese may have believed he still may want it. So Milley knew Trump didn't want war. But there was a concern that miscommunication at some level could prompt the Chinese to act out. It was what Milley called privately the, quote, absolute darkest moment of theoretical possibility. That's what he had to confront. That's why he spoke to the Chinese. You know, times of transition in the United States, whether it's through an assassination like in 1963, uh, you might even say the same thing about 1974 in the midst of Watergate when Nixon was resigning. But even in a quote unquote normal transition, say from Bush to Obama, those are times when the national security apparatus are on high alert because they know that if, if a country or some kind of entity wants to make mischief, it's a great time to do it. All eyes are like sort of, you know, on the Capitol and the the, the, the ceremony that's going to happen. Um, how was this different? In other words, would someone like a General Milley have called their counterpart you know, in a more normal sort of transition just to kind of check in? Uh, or was this totally out of the ordinary? It was very much out of the ordinary, but there were echoes of things that have happened before. As we note in our book, in 1974, Secretary James Schlesinger, the defense secretary, does kind of a call around when Nixon is drinking heavily at the end in August of 74, about to be impeached in the House and move on to a Senate trial. He's on the brink of all that, and Nixon's collapsing into his own presidency. Woodward and I talked about this a lot, that there are echoes in, of Nixon and his experience with the Trump final days. And, Nixon, and Woodward wrote the final days with Carl Bernstein in 1976. And what you saw in this period was a president once again collapsing into his own presidency, which unrattled which, which seemed to be unraveling and rattled national security and military leaders. But the most important thing we found is that, to your, answer your question directly, what was happening post-insurrection was not just a response to the insurrection at the national security and military levels. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, uh, Gina Haspel, for example, the CIA director, in addition to Milley, are highly alarmed, uh, especially Haspel and Milley, uh, O'Brien, not, not so much. O'Brien's still a Trump ally. Haspel's worried in November of 2020 of a, quote, right-wing coup possibly on the horizon uh, during the transition period. She wonders if Trump's going to strike out at Iran just to feed his ego. That scene's in our book. You have Trump firing Esper, the defense secretary, days after the election in November. And you also have a very important moment in November of 2020 where Donald Trump decides to go outside of the usual channel and make a rapid withdrawal memorandum for Afghanistan, stunning military leaders who say, what is going on? Uh, Millie and O'Brien go over the president and say, did you sign this? And you're supposed to consult with people on major foreign policy and military decisions. Trump ultimately shelved that plan, but he signed the document. It was almost put into action. And that moment was very important to understand January 8th, because you have Millie and others realizing Trump's not listening to them, and he's going outside on policy and major decisions on national security without talking to them. And then you even go back a little further in the summer of 2020, 
we call them full metal jacket moments in the book because that's how Millie characterized them privately to staff. With if you remember the movie, the the gunnery sergeant just screaming at recruits, and Trump would be screaming at military leaders over the George Floyd protest. Wanted to bring the 82nd Airborne into Washington D.C. Lethal combat troops. We document that in our book, and all of this is to say. When Millie's talking to the Chinese, it's the culmination of extreme concern that was building by the day from June of 2020 in particular through January of 2021. Well, and it wasn't uh, just Millie talking to his Chinese counterpart. It was conversations he was having having with his fellow generals uh, and members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, asking them or reminding them almost of their loyalty to the Constitution, not to a, an individual, but to the country as a whole, the Constitution, um, which, again, seems to me extraordinary. What can you tell us about General Milley uh, in terms of his character? I mean, was he somebody who evolved over the course of the Trump administration? Um, I mean, because he sort of seemed, you, you know, a, a sort of an unsophisticated analysis might be, oh, he's a Democrat. <laughs> uh, but obviously it's more complicated than that. But how do you see him as a, as a human being and a character uh, over the course of these years? He's someone who's really emerged now as a character on our national scene in a way he wasn't when he was appointed. Remember, he was appointed by President Trump to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs. President Trump liked his broad shoulders. This is a tough-talking Princeton grad, so somewhat of a brainiac uh, inside the military, but also really has that look that Trump likes. Uh, as someone who's covered Trump for over a decade, the word President Trump loves more than anything. Trump loves to say the word tough. And to him, Millie seemed tough. And remember, he loved Mad Dog James Mattis for defense secretary. So Millie comes in, and initially he's like a lot of people who are close to the president, the generals who surrounded the president early on. They all kind of go along with him. They they humor him in a way. The pre- we have a scene in the book where they're talking about uh, naval warships and how they're designed. And the president says to Millie, you know, look at my hair. I really know how design works. I know what looks good. And so you have kind of a warm rapport. He was joking. And that was what we're trying to show with that scene is that initially Millie and Trump are getting along. It's not a perfect relationship. But the turning point's June 1st when Trump walks across Lafayette Square because Millie realizes at that moment, so does Secretary Esper, you may think you can handle this situation, you can contain the president, you can try to nudge him in a different direction, but they felt used that the military, and Milley prides himself on being a nonpartisan figure, somehow is being painted with a political brush. He was coincidentally in fatigues that day, and then he's seen in front of all these cameras walking in fatigues, military style, with a president as he holds the Bible. And that was one of those major moments in Millie's life based on our reporting and everything post June 1st, you really see Millie on edge that this situation has turned. He needs to be on high alert about this president, his president's conduct, his own conduct. And you see Millie really trying to reaffirm week after week that this transition is going to be smooth, that they're going to have a new president, whether it's Trump or Biden, it's going to be a smooth process. And, and, and Millie, it's really a turning point in his life and career And that informs how he handles himself in the transition. I'm wondering, you know, members of Congress, if they're on certain committees, get confidential briefings. Um, And you mentioned Gina Haspel, the CIA director, saying we're heading toward a right wing coup. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing uh, for a CIA director of the United States of America to say. And I'm wondering, to what extent did members of Congress, Republican, Democrat, 
uh, get indications from inside the government that these concerns were very real. It was very uh, real at the top ranks. Speaker Pelosi is a veteran, and she used to, she's been on the Intelligence Committee, and she's the one, and we have the transcript in the book, who calls Milley and says, this situation better be contained. I mean, it's it, this book has so much in it, it's almost hard for Woodward and I to articulate the whole thing because you're, to your point about Haspel, that Haspel quote privately about a right-wing coup, it's gotten a little of attention. But just think about that, the nonpartisan CIA director – along with the senior officer of the U.S. military, both believe the president could be mounting a right-wing coup, or as we would detail with our reporter, the Milley, he believed the president was in serious mental decline. You may have seen General Milley testify before Congress in recent weeks and kind of sideways answered that question. He was under oath, so he was being careful, obviously, to state the truth. And he said, I can't assess anyone's mental health. And that was seemed to be a, a, a nod toward our book and the transcript on uh, between Milley and Pelosi. But in, in Congress, on the Republican side, you have a lot of people who don't really want to deal with the present reality. We see Leader McConnell uh, saying to Attorney General William Barr, hey, look, I got Georgia Senate races coming up in January. I don't need to be ruffling this president. I don't like Trump. We show him mocking Trump in private. Uh, but he didn't want to be dealing with Trump because he needed Trump's political capital in Georgia. Kevin McCarthy, close to Trump, grows increasingly frustrated with Trump, but doesn't fight him. In fact, he and House Republicans sign on. So on the Republican side, some concern privately, but everything in life and politics is about action. What are you doing? Little action. And you see Barr resigns himself. So some people just get out, get out of town. And on the Democratic side, it's Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi from your area. She's the one with the national security experience along with the political power. And that scene is so important that she's the one saying, tell me, make sure nuclear weapons are under control. And it's 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 prompted debate already. You see former Secretary Bill Perry wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed about, do we really have control of nuclear weapons in this country? The Constitution says the president's commander-in-chief, but we hope this book, it's already done so. It's not our hope, really, but it's interesting how the book's prompted debate about, does the presidency have too much power? Should a president be able to directly order a nuclear strike without consultation? At the moment, we, sh- we see Milley in January behind the scenes trying to make sure procedures are followed. And our reporting shows him working within the duties of his job, not breaking the law, not breaking uh, protocol. But he's making sure that procedures are followed. Yet there's no real law that states that Trump has to call someone before firing off a missile if he ever wants to do it. Well, I want to ask you about that point about uh, he didn't break any laws, um, because in the reporting uh, on his conversation with his Chinese counterpart, uh, General Lee, um, he says, and I, I, I don't think I misinterpreted, but he, 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 he did reassure him that everything was under control and even told him he would, I think you reported that he would let him know if something was coming. Like some sort of that seems to me beyond. I mean, you know, we would never do that with the Japanese in World War II, or, uh, you know, obviously that was in the middle of a war. You know, he's trying to maintain calm uh, and peace. But I mean, that strikes me as being a little um, over the line in terms of what a chairman of the Joint Chiefs should be doing. Uh, Understand that point. uh, But respectfully, I would urge everyone to read. That full chapter, that that quote about Milley warning the Chinese of an attack, 
comes on page 129 of Peril. And that quote was immediately seized upon uh, by some Republicans who called it treason. President Trump called it treasonous. He's somehow warning the Chinese about an attack. And they framed it as a subversive act, that he was somehow secretly tipping off the U.S.'s major global adversary. That's not what Milley was doing. Our book shows, if you read the next three paragraphs in that scene, you see the full context. And like everything in life, we, as a reporter, you always wish the full context is understood. And But I can't control what, what people cherry pick out of a book. But what you see, if you step back and read that chapter, is that Milley has a five-year relationship with General Lee. And that military-to-military calls, they call, they're called mill-to-mill in the national security community, are, are frequent. Milley kept this relationship up for years because military leaders want to make sure that, let's say there was an exercise in the South China Sea that somehow got hot and a U.S. plane started to get close to a Chinese ship. They want to have a back channel. And this used to happen between the U.S. and the Soviets, a back channel to calm things down before people start pulling triggers. And so this channel is kept open during the Cold War, and it's kept open now between the U.S. and China. And what Milley says to Lee is, look, I know there are reports in Asia that Trump's hot on China and he wants to maybe have a wag the dog war. That's what the Chinese fear based on U.S. intelligence. U.S. have good intelligence in China. Uh, we don't get into it in the book about exactly what it is. But the U.S. knew the Chinese worried in October that Trump was somehow going to fire a missile to win re-election. And what Milley says to Lee is, General Lee, you know throughout history, there's always been communication before an escalation in warfare, any kind of military kinetic action. You're going to see a buildup in our ships. You're going to see action uh, militarily that before a strike. We're going to have back channels open. Know that I, of course, will call, talk to you. You'll see buildup. If there's going to be action, you'll know. And that just like you have throughout history. And it was all about calming things down. And then you see General Lee say to Millie, I take you at your word. So it was not like Millie was going outside to somehow tip the Chinese off. He was trying to avoid a great powers war. Uh, now, people can be critical of military to military calls without involving the commander in chief. And that's a fair point to raise. People in Congress on both sides have raised that to me in, in recent weeks. Uh, but that's something for them to decide whether that's right or wrong. But uh, it, it was not something unusual for Milley to do. What was unusual was the context. Military to military calls can be routine, but the moment was extraordinary, trying to wave off a wag the dog uh, presumption on the other side. You know, it strikes me that your book could be sort of a Rorschach, political Rorschach test. Uh, you know, you may look, you, you read Peril and you think, wow, people like Millie really stood up. Gina Haspel, Bob, uh, uh, Bill Barr. Uh, well, we're not trying to say they stood up. OK, well, okay, but let me just finish. So but you could also look at that and say, because there are people on the right, QAnon and others who always talk about the deep state. And it's really these figures that are inside, deep inside the government that are running things uh, and they're subverting the will, uh, in this case, of the president. I mean, you could read your book and think, well, yeah, that's kind of what happened. Thank God that's what happened. But, you know, what's your response to that take on the book? Well, I mean, there, there is a national security and military leadership in this country, and it's not necessarily a deep state. It's the state. It's there. Uh, many of these people are sometimes public facing. 
but you are right. I don't think about you're, you're right in the sense that there are secret things that happen in government. And Bob Woodward would often tell me the one thing we're always trying to do is report on secret government because there's so much now and it's a legitimate complaint. I don't I don't call it uh, the deep state because that's not how I see it as a reporter. But there are there's so much that happens now in our government that's done on a classified basis or a top secret basis that's not out of that's out of the public eye and it, and it's our job as reporters to try to bring as much of that out and i think people rightfully in good faith if they're not making some kind of deep state conspiratorial claim people rightly complain they don't know enough about what's going on and you saw this in some of the milley testimony congress members of congress are saying we want to know if the Chinese think they're going to attack, we're going to attack them. We want to be we want to know more. So there is a lot happening sometimes outside of congressional knowledge. And that's something for lawmakers and people in power to consider how to address. But we're just trying to just dig in because there is too much going on that's secret throughout any administration. And it's and we want to shine a light on it. So much of the subtext for this, I think, is the psychology, the mental state or mental health of the president of the United States. Um, and at one point in the book, uh, somebody's warned that the one thing you never want to do is humiliate Donald Trump in person or in public because he will seek revenge. You hear, as you said, Nancy Pelosi talking to General Milley that he's unhinged, that he's unstable. And he seems to have, you use the word strong, talking about Mad Dog Mattis, but he's, he seems to have this fear of looking weak uh, and and the, the possibility of losing is something that just sends him over the edge. What, what do you make of that and how that played into all this during the Trump presidency? I'm not a psychiatrist, but many people around the president have tried to use psychiatry to understand him. It was really intriguing for us to learn as we reported out this book that former House Speaker Paul Ryan literally studied psychiatric manuals and articles in late 2016, early 2017 on narcissistic personality disorder to try to understand the sitting president of the United States. I don't know if that's ever happened in history, the Speaker of the House turning to psychiatry to understand the president. And that's the kind of moment uh, this country was in for four years, a total outsider president who had a very vexing, perplexing personality not only for voters, but for the people around him who had to deal with him as he pursued his own agenda or they countered it. And you see at the end, this real belief that he can't accept defeat. And there's a debate in, among some of our sources about how much of this is psychiatric, how much of this is a choice. For example, in the days after the November 2020 election, we have a scene, Kelly and Conway talking to Trump, and he says, how did we lose how did we lose to Joe Biden? And what's so important about that is he's saying privately he lost. But it's only a few days later that Giuliani starts to say it was stolen. That's the new refrain. That's what we're going with. And you see Trump quickly change to it was stolen and he's never uh, gone back since. So this, la this inability to concede maybe in part, and I'm not a psychiatrist, in part driven by some other deeper character trait, but we do see him also making a decision to preserve his political base. I mean, one of the scenes in the book that stays with me is he's talking with Hope Hicks, Trump, 
And she's saying to him, Mr. President, why don't you just go down to Palm Beach, be the king of the GOP, you can run it all. And he says, hope I can't. My voters demand I fight. I gotta fight, that's what I'm all about. That's what people know me for, I gotta fight. And no one can really convince him otherwise. It's like, it's all showbiz. Um, I wanna ask you about uh, the, the Attorney General, Bill Barr. Uh, I think you sort of corrected me when you said, you said earlier, you started to say, well, I wouldn't say he stood up to him. He was, of course, uh, after taking over for Jeff, Jeff Sessions, uh, helped to try to put an early spin on the Mueller report and make it incorrectly seem that the president had been uh, exonerated. And yet, at the, you know, toward the end, he was the one saying, you screwed this up, you know, you effed it up you you know you and and refusing to buy into this fraud theory about the election telling him again and again there is no fraud mr president if there were we'd investigate it so sort of the same question i put to you earlier about uh, general milley did did Barr evolve in his his feelings because he could not have been surprised at what kind of personality donald trump was seeing how he treated jeff sessions it's a great question. And what we're trying to do is not say anyone was a hero or a villain. We want you just to learn more about what these people did. And with Barr, here's the real story based on spending the last nine, 10 months looking at this. Barr, from day one as attorney general, wanted to do everything he could to help President Trump politically. And that's already a controversial position to take as attorney general. You're supposed to be the law enforcement officer of the country. You're a, a Republican or appointee if it's a Republican president, but seen as somewhat of a nonpartisan role or should be, though, of course, that's been muddied over history. Sometimes attorney generals are very close to the president politically. And this scene in April of 2020 in the book is Barr walks in to see Trump and says, voters think you're an expletive expletive and you think you're an expletive genius. And so he's a political strategist, a counselor. And after the election, uh, Barr doesn't immediately just say it's time to wrap this up. He has people look at whether there was fraud. He has U.S. attorneys kind of looking into it for a little bit. And so he's trying to show the president he's willing to to listen to him, even though there was no evidence of fraud. Uh, Barr was willing to listen to a point. And then when the U.S. attorneys and others came back and said these voting machines are fine, this conspiracy about from Sidney Powell, the lawyer, that these voting machines were rigged by communists. It's insane. And Barr starts to get frustrated because he feels, based on our reporting, that he's done a lot for Trump. He's with Trump politically, but he can only go so far. And so he stops speaking to Trump for many weeks. And eventually they have a showdown in December in, in, in the West Wing. And it becomes clear that it's over for Barr and he decides to quit. Uh, but the president pushed him pushed him. He said, there's one conversation to the book that I reread today that I was looking at my notes from our reporting and, and Trump saying to Barr, you know, Bill, you're not doing enough over there. You better be doing a little bit more. I mean, there was pressure on the attorney general to look into stuff. And there's a new report out today uh, from Congress, which I is well worth reading. It adds new context to not only on Barr, but then the acting attorney general to really try to pursue where to find votes, where fraud instances could be uh, spurred. And the big picture here, if you step back, is that this is not just the president putting his thumb on the Department of Justice. What, almost like with Watergate, Woodward and I have talked about this. This is a sprawling effort. These are, There are multiple pressure points here. And it was hard for us at first to understand this as reporters, but ultimately you start to see the web of pressure points that lead to an insurrection, that lead to an attempt to delegitimize 
Biden's victory. In part, it's from DO, on DOJ. It's on Vice President Pence. It's on lawmakers on Capitol Hill, all trying to get to that moment where Biden's victory is thrown out and the election goes to the House. And getting the DOJ to say this election had fraud, that was the Trump push on that front to try to make it seem uh, illegitimate by the time January came around. I'm sure you've had many conversations with Bob Woodward about comparisons with uh, between this and Watergate and Nixon's final months. I mean, one thing that was famous uh, was the, the the walk up to the White House from Howard Baker and some of the old bulls in the Senate and in the House to say, look, um, you haven't been impeached yet, but if you stick around much longer, you're going to be because the votes are there. And Nixon left. And you know, in a way, I, Nixon's a complicated character, of course, but he also, he did have a, uh, I think, a, even though some would say he tried to shred the Constitution, I do think he had more of a respect for the Constitution than Donald Trump did, because it, it seems like Trump would have stopped at nothing, really, to just overturn the results of the election, as, as I think Dick Durbin said today, to shred the Constitution. I mean, is that your take? So what Woodward told me this one story as we were reporting this out, that to your point, when Nixon's on the ropes in August of 74, Barry Goldwater as well goes to see Nixon. And he says, Mr. President, that you're going to get impeached in the House. And when it comes to the Senate, you have five votes, five votes. And Mr. President, I'm not one of them. And Nixon says he resigns almost a day after this day or two after that, I think a day after he announces his resignation. Because when Barry, when you've lost Goldwater, the conservative, the icon from 64, you've lost the GOP. Uh, and so Nixon, and Nancy Pelosi references this in her conversation with Millie in our transcript. She says the Republicans at least went to Nixon, but no one's going to Trump. And that was part of the problem at the end of the Trump presidency. There, the president was talking to people like Giuliani and Steve Bannon and his social media director, Dan Scavino, more than McCarthy and and McConnell and others who may have nudged him in a different direction. Well, I think one difference too was back in the 70s, in the mid 70s, Nixon's approval rating was probably down into the high 20s, I would guess, by the time he left. Trump's really didn't change very much. I mean, it goes back to what he said in 2016, is I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and, you know, my supporters wouldn't care at all. I mean, and there's a poll out this week that shows uh, even more approval for Trump from Trump than he had when he left office. What accounts for that? I mean, you know, even educated, college-educated Republicans, a slight majority, 51% in a Pew poll, say Joe Biden was not legitimately elected. What, what happened? Well, I've covered Trump for 10 years. I first started to cover him when he was doing the racist birther movement in 2011 and 2012. And long story short, I've been to too many Trump events, hundreds of Trump events, rallies. I was there at his first Arizona immigration rally when he first got the roar about the wall. I could go on for hours about Trump stories, but in brief, do not discount, and this is all based on reporting and seeing it up close, the power of grievance about the global economy. So much changed in my coverage of American politics in terms of talks with voters after 08. When the recession starts, I start to see a rise of progressive uh, voices on the left who say the elites and the establishment are out of touch and the Occupy Wall Street movement. Then you have Bernie Sanders' candidacy in 2015, 2016. 
And then on the right, in reaction to kind of the global recession, you see the rise of populism and nationalism, Steve Bannon, Breitbart, the immigration fight in 2013. And this is a roundabout way of answering your question is how does this happen? Donald Trump, in part, is a personality that has many followers. Uh, but he, the predicate for Trump's candidacy was laid by the Tea Party movement, the immigration fight in 2013, the birtherism uh, episode in 2011 and 2012. This and the and Republican exhaustion in the core Republican base about the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Bush presidency, all of this allows the Republican voter to drift towards someone like Trump. And so many working class white voters who I covered who would never vote for Mitt Romney found the siren call of Trump's Syrian anti-immigration message and his powerful uh, anti-establishment uh, incendiary rhetoric uh, on all these different fronts really appealing. And that re appeal remains. And you see outsiders, whether it's Senator Sanders, uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, or media personalities on the right, like Tucker Carlson, someone like even like Steve Bannon, power is now much more fluid in American politics. And Trump caught people by surprise. But if you were going to Republican events, it wasn't really that much of a surprise. That's why in March of 2016, the whole reason this book happened, it's Bob Woodward and I got to be friendly in 2014, 2015, when I was starting at the Post. And I said to him, I think this guy Trump could win. And he said, if you think that, you better be asking him governing questions because he could be president. And I said, well, I take it seriously. Then he said, I take it seriously. I said, well, let's interview him together. So we interviewed him for 90 minutes about governing issues. And he, he laid out a lot in that interview in March 31st, 2016. It was our first co-byline together. He said, for example, real power is fear. That title of Woodward's book comes directly from that interview. Trump told us to our face, real power is fear. He told us rage. I bring it all out. I always have. That became the second Woodward book. He also told us he wanted to give everyone in his inner circle non-disclosure agreements, even though they were government employees. People laughed, but it showed you kind of the culture of secrecy around Trump. And Woodward and I have stayed close ever since then, trying to take Trump and these political movements seriously, because as we saw in January, this is very serious business. Democracy is, is no joke, and it can be tested, and you have to track it all. Well, and, you know, we've seen here in California, just very recently with the recall election, uh, where before the election, Larry Elder, who was the leading replacement candidate, who ended up getting almost half of the votes of people who did vote for a replacement candidate. A lot of people just didn't vote at all on that part of the ballot. But this was part of the playbook and Trump amplified what he was saying about. And Larry Elder was the in first place, right? If the recall had happened, he would have likely won. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was no one even close. I mean, and he he ended up with 48 percent of the vote. I think this number two was got 10 percent. Uh, and that was a Democrat. So, I mean, it really wasn't close. But Larry Elder, although he changed his tune on election night because the, the, the margin was so great, uh, seemed ready to to play that card, you know, to, to challenge the uh, the results. And Trump would have been very happy to chime in. And, and we're seeing that with audits, you know, in Arizona uh, and, and election officials being uh, some of their power being taken away in Georgia. So, you know, when you look at that landscape of uh, the different pillars of democracy being kind of knocked out or weakened, what do you see? Well, I think it goes even deeper than that. And we report on this in the end of the book. And I think this is really the thing to watch. 
it's not just about the audits right now. It's not just about challenging current officials. What you're seeing on the right is a real push to get elected to election positions on the municipal level, county, state, set to be even secretary of state of various states. There is a major push right now to get Trump allies installed or elected in election positions that decide how elections are processed, how how things are run. And this is because Republicans in 2022 and 2024, many of them across the country who are listening to Bannon's podcast, who are going to President Trump's rallies, they want more of a hand in how this all goes down. And think about this. And this is why we end the book with the phrase peril remains. In, in 2021, someone named John Eastman from California wrote a, a two-page, six-point memo spelling out how what many are calling a blueprint for a coup. What was the coup attempt in the eyes of critics of this memo? It was to throw out electors, to have alternate electors in states be recognized, and then to have them count uh, in Congress instead of the votes that were originally the, the, the slates. This doesn't happen because Pence and ultimately concludes that there and Mike Lee, we show in the book, does his own reporting. There are no alternate slates of electors. But suppose come 2024, it's different state legislatures, different election boards, and alternate slates of electors are ready to go. And there's a system of then maybe starting to recognize alternate slates all of a sudden. Well, yeah. And uh, in fact, there was a, a, a story, I think, just yesterday, I think, in The Atlantic about how Kamala Harris as vice president could be the last you know, thing preventing a, a real steal of the election in 2024, 25, when, they, when it goes to the Congress, as it did uh, earlier this year. Um, I, I don't know if you've analyzed that sort of theory, but, uh, you know, is the role, is her role potentially, uh, you know, not ceremonial, not administer? Well, well, no, the Constitution is very clear. Uh, I mean, it, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but you, you talk to constitutional scholars and experts and senators who are familiar with this. The job of the vice president is to count the votes. It's it's a counting role. I wouldn't use the word ceremonial necessarily, but your role is to process the count, to be up there. And, it, and it's ceremonial in the sense that you're giving integrity to the process by being the vice president, the president of the Senate and overseeing it. And Pence is talking to his lawyers during the transition saying, is there anything else we could do? Could we recognize, he asked the parliamentarian on January 3rd, is there a way we could maybe recognize some of these other things going on? No, the parliamentarian says, count the votes. And this conversation that really is interesting for history is former Vice President Dan Quayle, of all people, in political winter in Arizona, saying, Mike, all you can do is count the votes. Republican to Republican, Hoosier to Hoosier, conservative to conservative, all you can do is count the votes. Doesn't matter what kind of pressure you're under. Doesn't matter allegations of this or that happening in various states. Count the votes. And we don't try to say Pence is, a again, a hero or a villain. We're trying to show what he did. But imagine if he had not decided to count the votes. If the vice president walks away from the lectern on the day of congressional certification, you are at least 
moving closer to a possible constitutional crisis. Because even if the votes ultimately are counted by the president pro temp of the Senate, you lose the legitimacy of a transfer of power. And and that's what you see now in, in, in further reporting and in our book. So much of what was going on with the Eastman memo was about delaying the certification. So somehow alternate slates of electors. And that's why that Kamala Harris piece in the Atlantic is an important one. Unless the Electoral Count Act is addressed by Congress and and these kind of issues are kind of solved in a way, who knows if a vice president would maybe make a different decision next time around. Well, and there is a lot of ambiguity in the law around the Electoral College. And it seems to me that a lot of the discontent in our country comes in part through the Electoral College. Uh, you know, Joe Biden, in a popular vote, it wasn't even close. You know, it was at 6 million votes or something like that difference. Uh, I mean, he won by 5 million in California alone. Um, and yet there doesn't seem to be the will or the mechanism uh, to change that, uh, unless unless I'm missing something. I mean, there's not the will yet, it seems, or the, I'm, I'm tracking how this is all going to play out. But the, the uncertainty and, and vagueness of a lot of these things, it, it was a cloud over the transition and it hasn't gone away. Um, I want to ask you a question about Pence, because you said he's neither a hero nor a villain. Um, well, it's so, for others to decide. Some people say, think he's very much a villain. Yeah. <laughs> and some people think he's he did the right thing. It's well, what is that, your take, though, on him? Not not the hero villain part of it, but just. Uh, well, I can tell you about him on a human level. I mean, I covered him for so I've co- I started covering Mike Pence in 2010 and he was a backbench congressman. I started covering Capitol Hill and there's a place off the, the second floor of the Capitol, the House chamber called the Speaker's Lobby. And ambitious politicians will sometimes wander into there to give quotes to reporters. And Pence was so low key, he would wander into the Speaker's Lobby and not few reporters, if any, would ever approach him because he was just Mike Pence from Indiana. I mean, he wasn't the guy you would put in the third paragraph of a story. And his quotes were kind of anodyne. One time Pence and I were talking and he would say, Bob, you know, I used to be a talk radio host in uh, Indiana. I said, oh, really, Congressman Pence? So that was that's great. What was it like? He said, you know what they used to call me? I said, no, what did they call you? They used to call me Rush Limbaugh on decaf. <laughs> and I just said, oh, well, that kind of fits. And he was this uh, conservative Rush Limbaugh type Republican, but he didn't have the personality of Rush Limbaugh at all. Uh, and he becomes governor, is off the radar. Trump picks him in 2016. He may have even lost that gubernatorial race in 2016. And long story short is that this is a guy I have covered for a long time, a politician who was so ambitious, but so contained and he saw Trump as the path to being president for himself. And that's why when people ask me, oh, why did Pence entertain this for so long? Because he sees himself as a future president. And this is not he's not looking for some kind of West Wing moment to break with Trump. He wants to be with Trump. Well, and there was and maybe you just answered it with that last comment there. But uh, there were calls for uh him to invoke the 25th Amendment to, uh, you know, get the cabinet together and declare basically that Trump is unfit to uh, hold this office and have the nuclear codes and all the rest. Uh, and he really never gave that any serious consideration, did he? No, it's, and history will judge how this all, after the insurrection, Speaker Pelosi talks to Chuck Schumer and she says, we got to call Pence. We got to deal with this 25th Amendment, get him to invoke the 25th Amendment. And Pelosi's view, based on our reporting, was this is the time. 
there's been an insurrection at the Capitol. If this is not the moment for a 25th Amendment right out of the dictionary definition of when that moment is, this is it. So they call Pence together. And Pence doesn't pick up. And Pence puts the call on hold at his office. And Pence talks to his lawyers and his top aides. And he says, well, what do you think about this? And Pence doesn't want to do the 25th Amendment based on what we found out behind the scenes. But he's trying to figure out how to handle it. And his lawyer, Greg Jacobs, says to Pence, look, you don't need to do the 25th Amendment because our view as conservative lawyers working for you is that the 25th Amendment should only be used if the president's mentally or physically incapacitated. And we don't have that threshold in any direct way. So we don't need to do it. So Pelosi, as these talks are going on on Pence's side, Pelosi and Schumer are looking at each other over in their office going, what is going on? He's 20 minutes. Pence doesn't take the call. He's they're just sitting on hold. And ultimately, Pence never takes the call. He never talks to Pelosi and Schumer. Instead, Pence's uh, staff gets back to them and says he's just not going to take the call and he's not going to invoke the 25th Amendment. And that leads Pelosi and Schumer to go, well, it's time to do another impeachment because this is if this guy's not going to act. We got to do something. Yeah. I'm going to take some audience questions. Uh, one question here. How much responsibility does Mitch McConnell have in how Trump's presidency played out? Well, there's McConnell's favorite joke about Trump is to say, uh, do you remember when Secretary of State Rex Tillerson denied calling President Trump a moron and Republicans in the cloakroom will go, no, why? Why was he able to deny it? Because he called Trump an effing moron. And this always leads to big laughs inside the cloakroom. Which I think is all, true, isn't it? I think that's actually it, true. It's, oh, it is true. It <laughs> is true. Uh, that is why Tillerson did it, based on what we know. Uh, so you see McConnell, on one hand, can't stand the president, but he gets a tax cut. He get, His number one goal for his legacy is to overhaul the federal judiciary. Trump and the first White House counsel, Don McGahn, just keeps sending up nominations for federal uh, uh, judicial positions at, by the week. They get to appoint all these Supreme Court justices, uh, Gorsuch, then Kavanaugh, then Amy Coney Barrett. So for McConnell, there's a lot of benefits to Donald Trump, even though there are headaches that McConnell calls them privately Maylocks moments. Uh, and so this is the story of McConnell is a lot like the story of so many Republicans. It's transactional. And McConnell is always someone who's just kind of a cold figure in saying, this is the reality I live in. And he doesn't want to go to public war with the president. And I think a moment that, again, history will judge, not me, but history will judge the days after the door of the Senate trial after Trump leaves office. McConnell clearly is emotional about the insurrection, but yet does not vote to convict Trump. And his argument is that Trump's out of office, but. Now Trump might come back. And if Trump had been convicted in the Senate trial, that would be very, very difficult constitutionally. Yeah. You know, on the other hand, Paul Ryan, who had been speaker uh, after reading all about narcissism, uh, chose not to run for reelection, um, which surprised a lot of people. I mean, he's young, up and coming, had been a vice presidential candidate uh, from a purple state and all that. Um, what do you make of that decision? Did you have a chance to talk with him? I mean, you know, did he just see what was coming and decide that he did not want to be in charge of that caucus? Well, our book was written on deep background, and we, we're not trying to be super secret and mysterious about this. It's a way of protecting 
the reporting so you can get a composite picture on as many sources as possible. We did over 200 interviews. And so we just don't discuss who we talk to, but the, we talk to as many people as we could who are in the room for these decisions, many of the key players to try to just over nine or 10 months nail the truth of what happened. Uh, and with the Ryan story, you see someone who is a lot like McConnell, different generation, but wants to get a tax cut, but comes in, he doesn't actually get what he really wants, which is entitlement reform, changes to Social Security and Medicare, uh, because the president doesn't have the political will to do it. And Ryan has kind of a breaking point with Trump around Charlottesville. But like so many around Trump, he just can't ultimately connect with Trump, understand Trump. And so he decides to leave Congress, to not run for reelection. Uh, and McConnell says to him after Ryan makes this announcement, I can't believe you're leaving the playing field. And McConnell, by saying that, our view is as reporters, he's, he's saying to Ryan, and he talked to people around McConnell and Ryan, he's saying to Ryan, look, of course this guy's. We don't like them, but we got to stay here. And that's going to be something that really is a kind of a theme of this book. So many people believed in the Republican Party that they could make this work, that we can get what we want. He's going to be a little odd. He's going to be crazy at times in their eyes, but we're going to get through this and get some policy gains. And we're not going to paint the party as Trump is for the rest of our lives. And then, then they watch what, what happens, though, an insurrection. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and just just before the insurrection, coming back to Bill Barr, I mean, he did choose to leave uh, toward the toward the end. You know, he could have stuck around to sort of prevent some of the craziness that tr Trump tried, as we heard today in this more, most recent report, to pull off. Um, you know, what do you make of his giving up? so close to the end when he really could have been like, you know, General Milley, somebody who, who made a difference. Oh, Bill Barr, there's the bars, Barr, he, he writes the sugary sweet goodbye letter to President Trump in December of 2020. And he sees how so many other cabinet members have a terrible exit and he wants to just get out with his head down. Uh, he also knows the president just doesn't listen to him anymore. So I want to just want to get to another uh, uh, question from the audience here. Uh, given um, one of our two major political parties does not seem concerned with holding insurrections to account, how do we avert a slide into darker forms of government? I mean, you can't look away from what's happening in this country. And that's not political advice. That's just a reporter's assessment. Because I've spent nine or 10 months with Bob Woodward looking at what happened in this country. And I think the New York Times editorial board nailed it this past Sunday. They referenced our book in a, their Sunday editorial, full page editorial on the side. And they said, what happened on January 6th was far darker than we previously understood. That this was not just some kind of random day where a rally spiraled out of control. This was an insurrection that was bloodless in the days prior, but intense, coordinated, sprawling. And this was an insurrection that had a president driving it. People don't. People come to, up to me and they say, "I'm I'm done with Trump. I don't want to talk about him anymore. I don't want to watch him anymore." And I just tell them, "You may want to avoid it, but you should go to cspan.org or YouTube and go watch one of his his 90 minute rallies from this summer." And what do you hear in those rallies? A war like cadence. I studied Churchill at Cambridge, and Trump's stealing Churchill's rhetoric. We'll never surrender. We will never give in. We will never give up. This election was stolen. And Brad Parscale, his former campaign manager, said this summer privately to others, he had an army, an army for Trump. 
He wants it back. And if he runs again, it will be for vengeance. What uh, hope, if that's the right word, like what what are you looking for in this investigation uh, that Liz Cheney and, uh, you know, is being done in, in the House? Um, it's sort of uh, it has a patina of uh, bipartisanship with her on it uh, and one other Republican. Um, they're looking into whether the Capitol Police uh, were involved in, in the planning of the insurrection, which would explain why so little was done to stop it. Um, and perhaps, you know, ex, a lot of ex-military people as well. I mean, there are a lot of deep, troubling questions uh, that, that could be answered by this investigation. But what, what are your expectations? Well, in the days after our book was published on September 21st, uh, we saw that the House Select Committee on January 6th issued four subpoenas uh, to Cash Patel, the National Security Advisor, acting Chief Acting Secretary of Defense's Chief of Staff during the transition, uh, a controversial figure because he used to work for the California Congressman Devin Nunes, Mark Meadows, the Chief of Staff to Trump, Steve Bannon, Dan Scavino. Four subpoenas are issued. Two of those subpoenas reference our book, Peril, cited as the main source for why subpoenas are issued. And Woodward and I looked at each other and said, wow, I mean, these scenes of Trump talking to Bannon, talking to Scavino, stand out and they drew the attention of the committee. Why do they draw the attention of the committee? I haven't spoken to the committee at length about this or any sources, but this is not just about the organizers at the ground level. Marty Barron, the former editor of the Post, used to always tell me, go to the top, focus on the person at the top. And who was the top? Trump. Trump's fingerprints on not only the Pence conversations, but conversations with people on the outside. I mean, we didn't know until this book was published. We, we had to confirm all this all the way to the end. Steve Bannon's talking to Trump and saying, you have to kill the Biden presidency in the crib. Focus on January 6th. And then on January 5th, Trump's talking with aides like Scavino saying, what can we do at this 11th hour to pressure lawmakers? So what the committee wants to really find out is what was going on? And our book reports for the first time that John Eastman's in the Oval Office on January 4th. The New York Times just did a good follow-up story with new reporting. But our book shows that details that John Eastman and Trump are pressuring Pence to his face two days before the insurrection, saying, listen to John, read the memo, listen to John. You can do this, Mike. You can do it. And so the committee's really trying to, based on my reporter's view of this, paint a picture of not just the ground operation, which is a very important component. How does this rally become an intense insurrection? But also inside the West Wing, inside the Oval Office, beyond the president just passively watching TV on January 6th. We all know that story. It's in our book. We've all read articles about it. But the story is not always the day. It's the prior. It's the planning. Well, we reached the point where we have, unfortunately, just uh, one more question or time for one more question. Uh, Robert, but uh, it's gonna, we're going to switch parties here. The question is, uh, do Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema enjoy being in the position they're in right now? Uh, what have you observed from the last 10 months? And uh, it may be a little hard to say whether they're enjoying it or not, but they certainly are getting a lot of attention. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure on both of them, especially her. Uh, there, there is a lot of pressure. And our book, so much of it's about President Biden. And I would urge you, if you're interested in reading about this current administration and Manchin and cinema and the dynamics of the Democratic Party, uh, not being too much of a salesman, but this book's a lot about Biden. And some of the scenes are so vivid with Biden and Manchin cursing at each other. 
I mean, having tough conversations. And the most interesting thing is that Biden is confronting Manchin and Cinema right now. Think about that. Biden for decades is in the Senate as Amtrak riding centrist Joe Biden from Delaware, the guy who passes the crime bill, the kind of moderate who goes with the Obama on the 2008 ticket. He was the more moderate establishment Democrat, the working class roots from Scranton. But when he comes into the presidency, we have the scene in our book, February 1st, 2021. He looks up at the wall, FDR, and says, these are the kind of times we're in, global pandemic, economy in crisis. He has chosen to be a progressive, transformational president when it comes to his spending packages. $1.9 trillion in March of 2021, a historic piece of legislation in terms of its size and scope. He gets it through. How does he get it through in March? We detail it all by pressuring Manchin. And how does he try to get the spending bill now? He's pressuring Manchin and Cinema to come along. This is a different Biden. A Biden who's made a choice to have a progressive legacy. I remember when I first started covering Biden, he was vice president. I used to stand outside Mitch McConnell's office in the Capitol during the Obama years, and Biden would often come to cut deals with McConnell. That's not been the Biden presidency MO. He's not the deal cutter with Mitch McConnell. I mean, they're doing a little bit of a piecemeal now on the debt ceiling, but that's kind of after the huge standoff overspending. Yeah. Well, and of course, uh, next year's elections may determine whether Joe Manchin has less power, more power, the same amount of power. Uh, there's a lot writing on that. Well, I want to thank you. The book is uh, terrific. I, uh, I read a lot about it probably, but I really encourage you to read it. Uh, it does, as Robert pointed out, have a lot about the Biden administration as well. Um, but I want to thank you, Robert, uh, for joining us today, for discussing this book. And we'd also like to, as always, thank our audience for watching and participating. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much. Stay well, stay healthy. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.